The Psalm 23 is indeed found in your pew Bible on page 510. You will forgive me if I read the King James Version. This is the version that I grew up with and learned to love. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will be reading the Old Testament reading. It's Isaiah 33 verses 10 through 16, and it, be found, it's can, it can be found in the Pew Bible, page 660. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted. You conceive chaff, you give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples will be burned as if to as if to lime, like cut thorn bushes, they will be set ablaze. You who are far away, hear what I have done. You who are near, acknowledge my power. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless. Who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with everlasting burning? Those who walk righteously, and speak what is right. Who can reject, gain from extortion, and keep their hands from accepting bribes? Who stop their their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil? They are the ones who will dwell on the heights, who whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied, and water will not fail them. As you can see right above me, I will be reading Matthew 6, 25 to 34, page 894 in the Pew Bibles. Do not worry. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers in the field of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. 
If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It's a familiar passage, if not uh, also an extremely valuable one. And one we have difficulty implementing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. It's not unthinkable that there are people in the field of psychology who might take issue with some of Maslow's work and research, especially as old as it is. It's not unthinkable that Christians might want to debate one or two of the concepts that he brings forward in terms of his hierarchy. But it is also a generally accepted ladder of description, telling us what our most basic needs are moving us toward our less most basic needs. At the bottom of the rung, and I would put them in this order, first comes air. Because most of us have somewhere between one and five minutes uh, to live without air. The next, it would seem to me, would be water because without the capacity to take in liquid, we all wither and shrink away. And most of us will not last much more than three days without water. Now, this is tricky because if you're taking in fluid, you have to also let go of fluid. Same with food. And so the whole process of elimination is tied to intake, and I can't tell which comes first, the chicken or the egg. But both are pretty essential. The body, in the breathing in and breathing out, and the taking in of food of water, and the element, elementary processes that rid us of these things, has a homeostasis that's pretty basic to our existence. It's very fundamental. When we look at where we spend time and where historically people have spent time, I mean, to, to quote President Bush, we're working hard to put food on our families, right? <laughs> Isn't that what it's all about? We are working, we give our time and our lives for the means to buy bread. And many other things, thankfully, to most of us. So there's a big disconnect. I remember... Um, Boy, I hate to admit to watching this because some of you may judge me badly, but uh, I do get a kick out of The Simpsons from time to time. <sighs> and I remember one episode in particular where Bart is asked to give the Thanksgiving prayer. And as I recall, it goes something like this. Well, Lord, thank you for nothing. It looks like we paid for all this stuff ourselves. Amen. Cynical, yes, but not too far from 
sometimes our sensibility and consciousness, which is why it's, it's perhaps uh, funny to us. In my note today to you, you'll note that one of the things I want to grapple with is this sort of uh, separation I feel from the realities in many parts of the world and what that means in terms of God's promises. If the organization I quoted is correct, very close to six million people have starved to death this year. Now let's not pretend for a minute that they haven't tried everything and every means at their disposal to live. They've sought work. They've sought family. They've often tried to get to other places if there's famine or uh, there's been no rain to grow crops. Crisis in northern Africa right now. They've stolen unthinkable things, cannibalism and other things have taken place. And they've perished. They've done everything they could to survive because the hierarchy of need says that's where the energy is going to go. Trust me, if you can't get air, all of your energy is going to go to getting air until you get air or until you pass, one of the two. If you can't find water, pretty quick, all of your energies are going to finding water, food, etc. That's the hierarchy. This is how it works. We're driven to take care of these needs, and they're fundamental to us. So there are several counterintuitive pieces here. On the one side, the counterintuitive piece is Christ says, don't worry. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and that's taken care of. So that's one counterintuitive piece. The other counterintuitive piece is the disparity that we feel or, or don't feel that we know exists when we live in a land in which food is so abundant that we're throwing it away, and others we know, as it turns out, significant nother, uh, numbers of others are starving. Now, parents, I'm not talking about the old-fashioned clean-up-your-plate trick here. I got to the point where I told my mother to send the food to somebody in China. Thank you very much. It didn't make me healthy, and it didn't feed starving people. It made me fat. Okay, I don't need a plate full. I like a plate full and two and three sometimes, but I don't need it. This is the psychological... Uh, flip side to what the rest of the world is dealing with. I don't suffer from a lack of availability about the only thing to buy out there is food. It isn't store, 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 restaurant. It's restaurant, restaurant, store, restaurant, restaurant, store, isn't it? And then in the stores there's food. Been to Walmart, Kmart, Costco? I'm not going to ask you what you eat there chances are it's not very good for you. We have too much access to food that isn't even good for us. People suffering malnutrition in this country are doing so not usually because they can't access food, but because they don't have the education to make good choices or the resources to buy good food. That's a real challenge. Poverty and starvation deeply connected. But what do we do with this peace when Jesus says, when God says, I'm going to take care of you, 
We have that sensibility as Christians. And we look out at a world in which six million people have died of starvation. Doesn't feel right. So let's set a context, can we? The first context is given us in Scripture. We're created by God for life. But the wages of sin are death. And we participate not only in the original sin in which humankind disbelieves and doubts God and disobeys God, we participate in an ongoing disbelief and doubt and disobedience. One of our own. Christ holds the key to death and the grave. His resurrection is a point of resolute victory. And so we say, that's been 2,000 years, why is it we're still dying? And the context of that has to do with a promise to come back again. And a commission and a work we've been given to share with our friends and our families the good news about who God is, his graciousness, his kindness, his goodness, his love, his desire that no one should suffer. The context is that until the eschatological realization of all that's promised comes, and let me put that into English, until Jesus returns and establishes the reign of God indisputably forever, and until we are changed from mortal to immortal in the twinkling of an eye, we have one mandatory assignment, and that's to die. How we get there is anybody's guess. It's not a thrilling topic. It's not a happy topic. It's one we give some thought to. It's one we express considerable sadness around. So often lives are cut short. But in the context of our world and in our situation, we have two things to keep in mind. Sin reigns until Christ has eliminated it. And death reigns until he comes and establishes his kingdom, not the kingdom established when he came the first time, which was established and continues, but the eschatological fulfillment of that, the end time fulfillment of that in which evil is eliminated. Death is declared victory over and we are changed and mortal has put on immortality. So until that time death reigns, And bad things will happen. We've read Matthew. We know the signs, right? There'll be celestial signs. There'll be earthquakes. Tsunamis. Famines. uh, Wars. Rumors of wars. Pestilences. Plagues. Diseases. All sorts of things. 
I would say that it will never come nigh our dwelling. That's one of the promises as well. And yet, Christians die of cancer. And other diseases. One of the advantages of being a Seventh-day Adventist is that if you know the health message and live it, you will avoid a lot of plague and disease. Your chances of living a long life increase significantly. That's borne out in study after study. So we've been given something significant. We've been given tools to be healthy, happy, and live longer. But things still happen to God's people, don't they? You read of a family caught in a tragic plane accident. Serving God. A pastor who's caught in a terrible car accident. So... Bad things happen in the context of today's world even to God's people. And there's another element missing that I think we don't often consider. And that is God's promises in these cases are often tied to a particular understanding or condition, if you will. It doesn't say in the Psalms, in in the passage we just read from Isaiah, that everybody's bread and water is sure. But then we ask ourselves what happens in geographical variations? If a Seventh day Adventist starves in Ethiopia, is it because he's somehow less righteous than a Seventh day Adventist in California? Let's look. Isaiah 33. I'm going to break this down very quickly for you. 10 is about God. 11 and 12 are about the status of who people are, what we are. 13 is about coming to acknowledge what is true in 10. 14 deals with the question of who endures based on covenant and choices. This is 14. 15 and 16. So let's take a quick look. Now will I arise, says the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I be lifted up. Why is this? Because he's the Lord, the creator God, the supreme one. We will learn and know that. You, he says to the people, conceive chaff. That's not very meaningful to most of us living in the setting we do, but I think most of you probably know chaff is the byproduct of the threshing of wheat. Wheat is what we take and eat. It's the grain. Chaff is the husk, the leftover, the dry consumable. You conceive chaff. You give birth to straw. Your breath is a fire that consumes you. The peoples, uh, by the way... um, Never refuse a breath mint. I think that's what that's saying. 
The peoples will be burned as if to lime. Like cut thorn bushes, they will be set ablaze. Those little saps and syrups, if you will, that run in the thorn bushes, they make it burn extra bright and extra hot. We're like chaff. We're a consumable. If you've ever burned straw or grass, you know that it goes about that quickly. And that quickly is about what our lives are like before an everlasting God. They're not even a blink. We're lucky if we have three score and ten. We're very fortunate and blessed if we have five score. Six score would be an amazing life. It's like that to God. You who are far away, hear what I've done, and you who are near, acknowledge my power, God says. The sinners in Zion are terrified. Trembling grips the godless, those who walk, excuse me, who of us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who of us can dwell with the everlasting burning? That is to say, that which would consume chaff or straw. And if we tie it to another concept, God himself is what? A consuming fire. So who can stand in the presence of God? And the answer is, those who walk righteously and speak what is right, who reject gain from extortion and keep their hands from bribery, who stop their ears against plots of murder and shut their eyes against contemplating evil, They're the ones who dwell on the heights, whose refuge will be the mountain fortress. Their bread will be supplied them, and their water will not fail them. So they live in a protected place, and they will be taken care of. Now this isn't the three monkeys. Hear no evil, see no evil, do no evil. This is not that. The Bible isn't describing a state of denial or withdrawal. It's talking about keeping your path straight and your intention pure. It's talking about walking the way of the righteous. Now, that's an interesting concept to me because by the time we get to the New Testament, what do we find out about our righteousness? It doesn't really exist. It's like a dirty rag. There is no righteousness except the righteousness of Christ. So the New Testament helps contextualize this for us and put it clear. But in this context, it has to do with covenant relationship. It has to do with keeping according to what God has asked. It's talking about justice and living well and right. You see, bribery is about injustice, is it not? So it it is about those things, keeping our minds clear doing right. So the context then for this promise, which is widely quoted by Christians, your bread and water is sure, widely quoted out of context, your context is that if you do these things, if you are with the righteous, if your path is been made straight, if you are walking it, God takes care of you. That is to say, if you're covered in covenant relationship. Today, that's a covenant of grace. So we can take this promise and claim it. But I think we need to come back to an understanding of what it looks like in the larger picture. 
These people starving to death cry unto God, you can bet they do, as you would if you watched a child of yours starve to death. They cry unto God for deliverance, for hope. They cry unto God for food, for water, for shelter, for mercy. There's an eschatological answer that Christ gives in Matthew and in Luke. In Luke, it's very direct. In Matthew, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. In Luke, it says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you if you are mourning. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew says, blessed are you if you're hungry and thirsty. So we have this message that's contextualized there that says something about the justice of the large picture. That there are those who suffer here and now and their reward is coming. And there are those who live well now and they need to be aware or careful, lest judgment come. Which raises the question of can we prevent starvation and can we help? The answer is no, and the answer is yes. There's enough food in the world, but there's not a political system that would allow us to distribute it. Capitalism produces excess which could be shared. But in some countries, it is the design of the particular dictator or party in power that a particular group of people should die. You can ship all the food in the world. You can airlift it and drop it. You can do everything you want. But the people with the guns on the ground will decide who gets the food. And people will starve. This is the evil of the world in which we live. This is the sickness, the disease, the power and the greed that has taken over the minds of humankind. The atrocities that we're willing to commit for gain and for power. And the Bible is an answer to this because it reminds us there is only one who is, is as a consuming fire. There is only one who has created heaven and earth. Only one who provides for all of his children. Only one who loves all. And he will deal with the wicked. God is not in the wholesale business of stopping evil at this point in time. He's one. He's waiting to see who is going to take the side of good. And we have a work to do along those lines. We have causes to support, funds to raise, people to save. Let's turn to a couple of other texts that help us perhaps. Psalm 37 is an interesting one. I don't have a lot of time. 
So I won't kill this one for you. promise in Psalm 37 is found in verse 25 and 6. I was young and now I am old, yet I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They are always generous and lend freely. Their children will be a blessing. This too is taken and brought forward. But if we listen to the entire psalm, there's an interesting poetry here that's going on. In verses 1 and 2, there's a sort of curse. In 3, 4, and 5, 6, and 7, an exhortation. In 8, and 9, and 10, again, a repetition of the curse. In 12, a repetition. In 14, 15, a repetition, in 20, a repetition. So let's just go through this. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do like the grass, they will soon wither. We've heard that in, in Isaiah. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Verse three, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. So this is covenantal again. We've got a God who is going to prosper us and protect us and provide for us and we're going to take delight in him, commit our ways to him, follow and obey him. And verse 7, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Don't fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out wicked schemes. Why is he saying this? It's because the guy who cheats always does prosper. You've heard that saying, cheaters never prosper? Eschatologically, I keep using that word. At the end of time, in the judgment day, that's true. Cheaters don't prosper. In the meantime, watch out. Cheaters win it all. Let's not be naive. For every person who defrauds the government tax-wise, what do you think the percentage is of people who actually serve time or have to pay it back? I'm here to tell you, cheaters prosper. That is not an encouragement, my friends. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret, it only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be what? They will be destroyed when they carry out their, um, excuse me, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while. And the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Sound familiar? It's back to that Sermon on the Mount. Jesus quotes this. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy to slay those who are, whose ways are upright, but their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Another reference. Better the little that that the righteous have than the wealth of the many wicked. 
For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Now, let's also understand this word righteous. The covenantal part here is not just that I'm going to say I love the Lord. It means taking care of the fatherless, the widows, the strangers within the gates, and the aliens. Oh, you didn't want to hear that, did you? That's what that means. The course of justice means that you do not ever trample on the powerless. Then you are counted among the righteous. It's not a matter of affirmation. Yes, I love you, Lord. No. It's a matter of doing rightly. This is the righteousness that it's talking about. Doing justice and loving mercy and honoring the law. It means on the seventh year, you don't hold any debt against anybody. You free them in jubilee. That's what it means. It's a social structure that's foreign to us, but it's a valuable insight into what it is that God is saying because the resources of the world don't belong to one or to ten or to whatever. It belongs to God who wants to give them to all of his children. Verse 20. But the wicked will perish, though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be and go up in smoke. The wicked borrow and don't repay, but the righteous give generously. Those the Lord blesses will inherit the land, but he curses. Those he curses will be destroyed. The Lord makes firm the steps of those who delight in him. Though they stumble, they will not fall, for the Lord upholds them with their hand, and there's that promise. I was young and now old, and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. Turn from evil and do And then you will dwell in the land forever, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful ones. And here it comes again. Wrongdoers will be completely destroyed. The offspring of the wicked will perish. The righteous will inherit the land and dwell in it forever. Interesting passage. And it goes on poetically in much the same form further on. Psalm 55 has some interesting insight. Are you tired yet? I can give you homework, but I know most of you would get a failing grade, so I think I'll just help you with that right now. Psalm 55. The promise portion here is verse 22. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. There it is. We want to quote that part, but we forget the rest of it. Let me be a little more expansive. You see, in a world governed by Christian values, shaped by the righteousness that Christ is talking about, in which justice and mercy are part of the equation, in which the widow the fatherless, the alien, etc., are taken care of in the context of the prescriptions outlined in Moses' law. In which debts are periodically forgiven, in which a people are not to take advantage of one another or lend with high interest or so forth. In the kind of world described there, there is ample opportunity 
for the clock to be reset for those who make mistakes. And there is opportunity for people to enjoy gain. And there's opportunity for all to share in the blessings of God. But we live in a world in which the richest 2% of the population controls what percentage of the world's assets? Anybody know the statistic? I think it's... Somebody's saying 90. I think that's high. It's significant. It's over 40%. 2% over 40%. So if we reshifted that equation, if we thought differently about our responsibility to humankind, it may be that we could make a real difference in how many people starved to death this year, in whether or not people's food and water would be sure, in whether or not we would adopt and advocate for political systems that promoted justice. Just something to think about. What that looks like practically is very different than what it looks like in the Old Testament. But it gives us God's desire, the intention of his heart. Do you think when you get to heaven, you're going to have a seven-story mansion with a lap pool, a regular pool, an eternity pool, a jacuzzi, and somebody else is going to be living down on your back 40 in a little mud hut? (laughs) Is your version of heaven that you'll have a walled city in which you live in the castle and all the serfs do your bidding? That isn't God's vision of heaven. It isn't the way it's going to work. If we read the descriptions of what's coming, a person will be able to make their own wine and drink it. Isn't that what it says? Tend their own gardens and eat from them. Have I misread the scriptures somewhere? That's God's version. That's the freedom. That's heaven. Our version of what heaven looks like sometimes I think is a bit different, at least based on the resorts I've visited, places I've gone. When we look at the overall message of Psalm 55, it doesn't say, a blanket promise of sustenation of sustain God sustaining us no matter what but we do have the eschatological hope that end time fulfillment hope that a more just world will be born a more righteous world will be ours to participate in one that fulfills what Christ talks about in Matthew 6 Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. God knows what we need. He cares about it. He designed us to live the way we live. He knows. 
And we have a responsibility. Matthew 6. Don't worry about your life or about your body, what you'll eat and drink or what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? So let's take a lesson from creation. The birds don't sow or reap, but they're provided for. They're not lazy either. Are you not much more valuable than they? And can you add to your life by worrying about it? And let's take clothing. Solomon, in all of his wealth, grandeur, all of the gold woven into his cloth, paled in comparison to a flower of the field which dresses grass and will be consumed along with it when the field burns with fire. Hmm. You have little faith. Stop worrying. Quit asking yourself what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink. And I know some of you are starting to do that right now. Lunch is coming. What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? Have faith. This sermon too shall end. Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom. This upside down, odd, strange thing we call a kingdom. And his righteousness. And all these things will be given you as well. The Lord has promised. He says he will take care of us. He says our bread and water will be sure. That is not faux gras with champagne. It's bread and water. It's going to meet our needs. It's going to take care of us. He's going to set us up and protect us. We're his people. And his word is sure. But let's embrace the task of making sure that all people have access to that. Until he comes and establishes himself permanently, eschatologically, until sin and death are gone, let's use our resources to battle those things. Let's be his people in a righteousness that does more than profess a righteousness that acts. Let's put first things first. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. May the sure provisions of our God attend us all the way in each and every day and may we walk in righteousness for his name's sake. Amen.